people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. So, hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What, a podcast about the far right, fascists. And uh, Nazis as well. And anti-fascism. And anti-fascism as well. Um, my name is Sam. And I'm Alex. And we're joined today by David Renton. Hello. Who uh, has written a book called The New Authoritarians, Convergence on the Right, which is a really interesting kind of large-scale theory about the transformations in the conservatism, the non-fascist far-right, and fascism. Those are the three kind of like uh, political positions that are discussed in the book, and the transformations in between them and how they've kind of come together or been blown apart in the last, say, uh, 10 years, roughly. That's kind of roughly the time span the book covers. Um, talk us through the kind of the basic thesis of the book. The book is obviously subtitled Convergence on the Right, and the first line is a wonderfully succinct summary. Um, the new right has changed. It has embraced the ideas of its outliers. Can you expand on that? What does that mean? What are the significance of this? Okay, well, um, a lot of where the book came from was um, 20 years ago, I was just um, an activist on the left, um, and I wrote the first attempt to try and explain what was going on the far right then, and this book was all about fascism. And um, I was happy, happy with the book. I was um, quite proud of it. Lots of people liked it. We were talking about bringing out a second edition, and when I started thinking about what I'd argued then, it just seemed to me that, that what I argued was completely wrong. Um, and I don't particularly mean that, that I was completely wrong. I just mean that, that I had an, an approach towards all these topics, which was essentially the same as pretty well everyone on the left that I spoke to. And it was to, to think and say, right, we're facing a problem. The problem is fascism. The problem is people just trying to repeat the past. So, so when I came to writing this new book, what I really wanted to try and explain was, was how things are different. If I maybe had just one small sentence, I'd say... What I'm trying to talk about is both change um, within the right and, and how people move from one point to another in the political spectrum. But the other thing I'm trying to talk about is how people group together. Okay, yeah. So this notion, this kind of the two sides of this are on the one hand, you reject talking about like ideal types, uh, so the ideal type of fascism or the ideal type of the far right. But also, you want to say that there are. How would you describe this kind of process of grouping together? Are people clustering around issues? Are people coming together on the basis of their like kind of similar libidos or similar kind of affective regimes? Probably not. Uh, are people coming together under certain signs? Are people coming? To, how are people, this clustering effects going? The, I mean, the, the truth is actually there are a lot of different clustering processes. If you want a really simple and straightforward example of it, you might look to say Austria, where you've now got a coalition government between um, the far right, well, between the, a conservative party. Um, which has moved to the right, and a party which was set up by people who wanted to recreate the Austrian um, fascist parties in the 1930s. They're now in coalition together. So there's a convergence there that's really as simple as just a pact, a deal to govern. It's that simple. But convergence can take lots of different forms. I mean, if you want to give give a really simple example of how this has felt a lot for anti-fascists, it might mean something like the following experience, which happens a lot. Um, you're in the States... Um, a local college Republican group want to get a speaker. Um, they want to get someone who's got some profile or get a big audience. They are Republicans. They are, in British terms, conservatives. Um, but the people they choose might well be some idiot right from the, from practically the Nazi ages of the far right, just simply because that's going to be the way they're going to get a bigger audience and make themselves look important. So they're willing to work together. 
So what I'm talking about is all those different kinds of convergence processes and saying these are happening again and again and again. They're happening culturally, they're happening politically, they're happening in low politics, high politics, the works. I think the, the term convergence implies that there's something like a more or less kind of grand strategy here that people are fairly deliberately attempting to kind of um, move towards each other on the right. So the, the fascist, well, the non-fascist far right and conservatives, they are moving towards each other. Like, but are you seeing it in terms of a a strategy or is something more, I guess there are, there are, there are many different case studies in the book, um, most prominently like Trump, Brexit and the French uh, the Resemblement National. Are you seeing this as a kind of strategic process of the... Um, no, no, I, I, I don't see it as strategic and I don't see it as about intention. Um, I see it as about a bunch of people having the same interests, about them reading certain sort of issues like you know, 9-11, the war on terror, in broadly um, the same lines and therefore seeing each other as allies, whereas in a way that 30 years ago the same people wouldn't have seen each other as allies. They'd have seen some limits, certainly in terms of the, con the ordinary conservative right. They would not have gone, and I give examples of gatekeeping that were happening and, and which have broken down. Um, but, I mean, maybe, maybe one way to put it is, is like this. Um, one of the big analogies I was thinking about when I, when I was writing the book was something which historians of fascism talk about, which is the 1930s is an age of fascism. How on earth is it that all these people who start off with completely different mm -hmm. political plans all end up in one fascist party or even one fascist international when they're actually people who under ordinary normal politics would hate each other and fight the whole time, but they end up coming together? You, you don't need someone planning it but you just have the right background contextual factors for all those people to say, yeah, it's in our interest to go with this. Well, certain material conditions that then bring up these kind of common interests that then people come around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the big the big material conditions are post 9-11, the war on terror, the imperial dynamics of that, and there, um, the economic crash of 2008 mm -hmm. and, and the, the ongoing consequences of that. I, I think I'd want to kind of add into that picture also that there, I was... Uh, saying this Alex before the show began that there's also a different um, way people approach information and the way people conceptualize the world and a lot of the book um, includes discussions of conspiracy but I wanted to kind of um, suggest that like the really the conspiracy seems for me to be at the heart of what is um, what is kind of being uh, what is changing about the far, about the um, far right and the the reason why i think that is because it seems like um instead of maybe a convergence it seems like there's a diffusion on the far right of a kind of conspiratorial way of thinking a conspiratorial way of like relating to the world so instead of being kind of um anything to do with interests it's much more to do sorry instead of being to do with necessarily political interests it starts even from the basis of the ways in which people understand the world, the way in which people are able to give expansionary accounts to the world to each other that can kind of circulate. Um, and this is how movements are formed in a context where there is mass depoliticization, but at the same time, a massive step up in the amount of and the diversity of the channels of information people are able to get. So a particular example of the way this functions in fascism, I think, would be something like um, the... Uh, QAnon, the QAnon conspiracy, which essentially, as I uh, think I mentioned in the previous episode, is a conspiracy whereby people are able to understand Trump as acting against a deep state. And what this allows, although you say in the book that Trump is not a fascist, what this allows is for fascism to, in some ways, 
or like a far right project allows that to seem like it is still in the movement form whilst at the same time being at the center of state power and so the elision of contradiction that happens in some of the material conditions in the 30s things like war is here replaced by an elision of material contradiction through paranoia um conspiratorial thinking that's a yeah. hugely elaborated question sorry yeah no look, I'm, as you're talking i agree i found myself thinking about what you're saying and agreeing with a lot of it um, if I've got a different approach, it's not that I disagree with anything you said. It's just in a sense, what's at the heart of what interests me? And what interests me really isn't um, something like either, you know, someone who's, who's openly copying fascism or even um, something on the far right that's very close to, I know, the Proud Boys or something like that. And obviously those people can have conspiratorial, etc. worldviews because actually those sorts of things in history can't really survive without any time without it because they're trying to explain stuff in the world and they need something to do that for them what i'm really interested in is how that conspiratorial um thinking gets much closer towards mainstream politics you know that's the thing which really interests me um and not just towards mainstream politics just towards the mainstream of just social life in general so that you know you might be an activist and move in relatively left-wing circles, but there'll be people in your in your circles or in your friendship circles who are listening to this stuff and are, and are taking on board odd, weird bits of conspiracy thinking. I know that Hillary Clinton had a dungeon somewhere or something <laughs> ridiculous, but you will meet people who honestly have told themselves that. Now that's the thing which interests me. It's not that the far right is paranoid. <laughs> You know, that's obvious. Yeah. It's that lots of people who aren't in the, on the far right are paranoid and that that's spreading. Now, because the book, a lot of the books about high politics, I talk a lot about that. But I'm just as interested when it's taking place, even things which are, in a sense, the unpolitical things where it pops up there. That That's much more important to me if you want to understand what's going on now. Um, you have this kind of um, checklist approach to fascism. Uh, kind of list off a number of things like a cult of a cult of le- a cult of a leader kind of leadership, um, like a, a an independent militia, a, like an organised party, um, and I just wondered. I I, I really appreciate that kind of way of defining fascism because it kind of speaks to the actualities of the pol- of the of how the politics works in like the real world instead of some kind of. Um, I know you talk. You discussed briefly Griffin, uh, Roger Griffin's kind of definition as like purely genetic ultranationalism, which is kind of. I, I mean, personally, I find it quite too loose and vague to be really analytically useful. I just wonder where you found, like, fascism that doesn't kind of fit into that kind of checklist party model and whether it concerns you. So, for example, the Christchurch shooter described himself as an eco-fascist and is quite clearly a kind of a part, sees himself as part of, a, like, a fascist activism. And a lot of these people, these people on these websites like 8chan on Discord servers see themselves as kind of like inciting each other into acts of violence and we've seen that recently in Texas as well. Um, how do these people fit into that kind of um, taxonomy? Like, do, is it, Are they like kind of the, the pre-activists towards going into a party or do you think that kind of this kind of like super violence uh, reactionariness is like taking a new direction? I know, I mean, there's, there's a lot there for me to answer. Sure. If, if I could start with just like what is fascism for me? 
Um, in general, actually, I try to move away from the checklist approach. I think earlier someone talked about it is, is the um, the ideal type definition. I, in general, I dislike that, and I think it's a, there's a problem with that definition. It's, there's a whole history of how that style of defining things comes about in social sciences, going back to ideas of Max Weber, and basically it produces static categories. Sorry, I put that on you just then. No, 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 that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> um, but but what. What I'm what, what I try and say is that the essence of fascism. This, this goes back to other things I've written over the years. Is that what fascism is about? Really, for me, is it's about a way of doing counter-revolutionary politics, but doing them on a mass scale. Um, it's not like conservatism because conservatism isn't really interested in the counter-revolution. Conservatism is really interested in managing the present. Mm-hmm. Fascism isn't. Fascism is interested in breaking the present, present and smashing it. But it sees it sees um, the way to deliver that future as being about mobilising very large numbers of people, mobilising in sense the people against the interests of the people, right. and that that's the core of what fascism is about, or, or certainly what it's about being historically. So when you start thinking about the people you're talking about there, who are the kind of small grouplets, the ultraviolent people, and so on, there's a kind of glib answer I could give you, and that's an answer I've, I've found satisfying different times, but I think there's a different answer as well. The short answer is just, look, they're not fascists. Um, they might have fascist ideology, they might be influenced by fascist people, but they're actually trying to do something that's different from fascism. Often what motivates them is that they've been around um, or connected to fascist projects and they've seen them collapse. Mm-hmm. So they get re-radicalised, further radicalised by that experience and they give up on the, the ambition of mass work. Now, that means in a sense they're not fascist because although they're influenced by fascism, although they've got fascist ideas in their head, they're not really trying to overturn the state and society in the way a fascist is. They're trying to have like an individual war against society. And you can find counterparts in other political forms on the left as well as on the right. I mean, you know, really. I mean, someone tell me what was going on with, you know, anarchism between about 1895, 1905, the idea of certain kinds of terrorist acts. I I don't know. That seems to me that there was actually a break away from the left in that. Not a large break, but a subtle break. Mm -hmm. And you can see the same process on the right. Um, But as I said, that's that's the simple answer. They're not fascists because they're not being mass parties. The the reason why I said that, I I don't think it's the full truth, is there's also something going on here which is what, one thing I'm trying to argue in my book, is that it seems to me anti-fascists, for quite understandable reasons, are always asking ourselves questions, who's the fascist in the room? Where's fascism going to come from? Now, one thing I've got a sense of, for all sorts of reasons, um, partly because I've been thinking about this a long time, I don't know where it comes from, but I've got a really strong sense that that's kind of the wrong thing to be looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe in 20 or 30 years' time, what we're going to be talking about is going to have a whole different ism at the end of it. And you know what? Maybe it's actually going to be worse than fascism. That there's no historical guarantee that fascism is the worst imaginable end point of bad politics. So once you've got an idea that the thing which might be coming might be different from fascism, but might also be extremely violent and murderous and, and terrible, then your answer to the question, well, are the you know are those people the precursors of fascism? Your answer is a bit different. It's like well, actually they could be the precursors of something else, and that something else might be awful but in a slightly different way cheery stuff <laughs> yes sorry. <laughs> also kind of speaks to the point of um the kind of things that like the, the normal like the normal air quote state is doing now are 
um, already pretty like horrendous without having to be like tipped into fascism, like you know mass deportations of people who are citizens. Never mind anyone else deemed even further outside, you know, the kind of states kind of care. Um, the charges for healthcare. I mean, you, you talk about some of these things in the book as well, and so it, in a way, I, I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like anti-fascism needs to kind of reorientate themselves and. And and realize that what's going on now is is something that needs to be struggled against and and kind of challenged and fought against and oftentimes it's kind of narrow laser point focus about who is the fascist and where, when can we you know get them is missing a, like a wider picture. Yeah, look, look but I I just read this lovely review of my book wow. and it was done by some you know nice old Trotskyist guys from from similar political tradition to me. And they read exactly half the book, or they commented on exactly half the book. They found the bits where I talk in detail about Britain and France and America, and they turned them into like country studies of, of what I'm talking about as convergence on the far right. Now, if you want to get that out of the book and kind of and turn it into, you know, this kind of where do politics we say um, there's a bad thing coming, but, you know, if the left gets organised, if we're united, if we're radical enough, we can defeat it. That's great. Those ideas are in the book. But there are other things in the book which I also talk about. Like, like I try and talk about how the far right learned to reorient itself at the end of the Second World War in an epoch of historical defeats and tried to admit to itself that a whole bunch of its, its ideas just weren't going to work and therefore it set off on a new course. And one of the things I'm trying to argue in my book, I, I think it's there, I'm, I'm surprised more people haven't found it, is me saying, look, the left needs to go through a similar process of, of rethinking, reorienting, realising the whole bunch of things we want to do just aren't working. Um, and that, that includes, I mean, this is a very banal example because there are lots of much deeper ways in which we're not working, but one of the banal ways is we keep on thinking to ourselves, there is a fascist out there, we've got to stop that fascist. And, you know, we just had European elections a few weeks ago where the party which won them is pretty far right and it got like 25 or so, or however many percent of the vote. And there's no emergency response, there's no, wow, we've got to make sure this can't happen. But there's an emergency response if Tommy Robinson gets 500 people on the street. Mm. Now, in a sense, that's necessary and that's inevitable and it's nice, it's good. It's because people are trying to address problems they can see and they can imagine dealing with. But I, I kind of think we need a bit more of the utopian imagining and think, well, yeah, we can defeat Tommy Robinson or whoever, but let's go a bit bigger than that. Let's defeat the Farages and let's be serious about defeating the Farages. And I think that's a really key point because people are not voting for the Brexit party um, solely because they're really, really into a no-deal Brexit. They're voting for the Brexit party because they see little alternative, even in Corbyn's Labour, and they see no no hope in the Liberal Democrats or the Conservatives. And there's it's this thing about having a like clear pole of attraction away from like in opposition to these kind of these other other polls. Um, yeah, I think we're going to get into the Brexit stuff uh, slightly later, but I want to go back sure. to thinking about um, these people. So one of the things you, you, you say, and I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important, as you've just been kind of articulating, uh, that things return continuously, the kind of atavistic tendencies on the right, but they don't ne- always come back in the kind of the same form. So I want to make a kind of suggestion, maybe you can kind of uh, knock it out of the air, um, which is that these, uh, the reason why in um, the reason why Trump doesn't appear to have um, an armed militia or doesn't appear to have an independent militia, which is one of the things that might qualify someone as uh, decidedly and obviously a fascist. Um, the reason why he doesn't is because he doesn't need one, because he has a more or less directable flow of stochastic violence, 
which is the, a way in which you could reincorporate the militias we were just talking about, the people, the Christchurch shooter, the El Paso shooter, the, you know, what is it, 89 uh, well, the, the, white supremacist the, attacks. And, the 3% militias who, like, had the thing about the cattle ranches and yeah, stuff. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> right, uh, Waco. Yeah. Yeah, the Waco siege. No, Waco. Waco, okay, yeah. sorry. Waco siege. The, re- the reason why Trump doesn't need there to be a, an independent militia under his control is because there is already a directable flow of violence. Yeah, but, but what's the violence for? You know, historically, the reason why people have been anti-fascist is that we've made a wager on history that fascism or something like it is the force out there that's most capable of being violent, um, even in the metropolis. You know, like historically, imperialism could do mass violence all over the world, but in the metropolis, metropolis was exempt except for during fascism. So the reason why there have been anti-fascists is that we've made a wager and we've said we don't want that to come here. We, we've drawn our line. We do not want genocide in Europe. We do not want genocide in America. We do not want uh, mass um, detentions, etc., etc., etc. Now, when you think about Trump, when people call Trump a fascist, the problem with that, to my mind, is it suggests to people that the conditions for that kind of mass star violence, the mass use of concentration camps, etc., is already um, in, a, in present in America. And it's already something that could be used against, for example, a significant proportion of the American working class or, or Trump's political opponents or whoever. Well, you talked about this, the, the violence of the state. Well, the violence of the state hasn't got there. The violence of the state hasn't got close to there. The reason why the violence of the state hasn't got close to there yet, it's an awful lot of violence has been used against other people, but not against people at the core of, of the metropolitan experience in the richest countries. The reason why they've been exempt is because the ordinary state will not do that under ordinary conditions of ordinary capitalist growth. It needs something to take it outside, and that's what fascism's for. And that's why it matters where this violence comes from. Um, it matters whether the violence comes from, for example, the state or from private actors. Now, Trump has control over the violence of the state, but, you know, because he's not actually trying to, he's tolerating and he's benefiting from, but he's not really trying to create a mass movement out of people like um, the Christchurch shooter and the, the American equivalents of him. Because he's not really trying to do that. There is a certain limit to how far Trump will go, I say. It's kind of from which perspective does that matter? You know, maybe from the perspective of someone who's trying to get into the states, the distinction doesn't seem tremendously important. Maybe, you know, and sometimes it isn't. But but just in order to understand where you are in the process, um, we're not at 11.59 with the seconds counting away to midnight. We are a bit further back. Um, and I think knowing that is part of equipping people to resist us getting to the really, really bad places, I think. I mean, I, I, I think I, I agree with you. Maybe my question was kind of like um, poorly phrased. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm just kind of, is there a, so you do think there's no credible bridge between the existence of um, sporadic but intense private violence and the possibility of this becoming an institutionalised state form? I think there is a bridge, and we can be specific about the bridge. The bridge is when politicians start saying that it is their ambition to organise lots and lots of people and to use political violence in that mass way independent of the state. And because Trump hasn't made that decision, or or Barn, or um, or whoever, at the moment there are certain limits. Um, but you can see where that that bridge would cease to apply. I mean, like in the in in the contemporary world, for example, it's largely ceased to apply in India around Modi. 
you know, once you talk about the violence that was uh, that's been enacted repeatedly there under under the BJP in the last twenty years, at that point it gets a bit meaningless the distinction. But but you know, in Turkey, so. yeah, exactly. But we're not at that point here. Yeah, I don't know. But you seek. I guess maybe the distinction is that the kind of the mass violence of the state is turned against non-citizens or immigrants rather than the citizens and like kind of working class organisations and things like that. Maybe that's the difference. I mean, it might not, I'm not entirely sure it means that much if there's like, I don't really, you know, if it's Mexican, uh, South American, you know, migrants being locked up in cages and children's um, family separations. I'm not entirely sure whether that distinction matters so much. Um, just for clarity, the position of 12 was for what has always been, that Trump isn't a fascist. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for some reason, it, it appears that when no, Dave's on, no, no, no. and he thinks that it isn't, we think he is. No, 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 I'm just saying that I feel, maybe I, I'm not accusing you of not caring about migrants in, in cages. I'm, I'm maybe pointing out that the, re, the reason people like, kind of naturally pulled towards calling Trump a fascist is because they see these very emotive images of like, you know, children in cages and, and, and make those links. I mean, obviously it's, it's not the mass scale it is, and a lot of the state apparatus is totally overloaded and overwhelmed by all these um, people they have to lock up. And so this, there hasn't been like the you know extra state infrastructure being built. But I don't know. It's it, it feels a tricky one to kind of navigate that kind of. Yeah, look, but but it's it's about distinctions of, of, of scale. You know, if if you come, if you if you ever tried just imagining walking around Britain without a credit card, without a um, passport. Um, it gets to be a really unpleasant experience really fast. Uh, and that's just the reality. Um, all of our affluent societies are, are based on a whole amount of concealed violence. Mm-hmm. But let's be honest with ourselves, for most people, most of the time it is concealed. And, you know, guess what? That's actually a good thing. You know, we really don't want to be in that kind of war of the state against all that fascism represents. So it is. it is the... That future is imminent. It's present. It's 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 within our present, but we haven't got there yet. Um, yeah, but equally, as, as I've been saying um, throughout, um, I really don't start. F- I mean, I really one of the things where I'm trying to critique conventional understanding of the left is with this idea that the end point, um, the worst imaginable end point, is fascism. You know, it's not. I really wouldn't close off at all the possibility that if you go through successive waves of authoritarian conservative governments, I really wouldn't rule off at all that they could find a different route to some really, really unpleasant places, which are also much more unpleasant even than what we have now. I thought your chapter on, I think maybe the second chapter where you discussed um, Evola and his kind of journey and then the journey of the MSI and then led to the AN. That's the Italian social movements. And then the... National Alliance. National Alliance. Um, was actually one of the, like, was, was like my, the, the chapter that I was like most engaging with, I feel. Um, and we kind of, we, we tried to do our own kind of version of this with our episode on neo-fascism, which I feel like we would need, we need to go back and do again. Yeah, we're going to re-record that. We should do that again because I feel like we missed a lot out and, and got some things wrong. Um, and I, I find it interesting that how certain organisations, certain parties dealt with their kind of fascist and neo-fascist legacies and and how maybe different organisations were needed in order to like take up the baton, as it were. Mm-hmm. So maybe, for example, the BMP um, could never shake its kind of you know roots in that kind of in that kind of politics, and yet the Brexit Party and UKIP have kind of managed to. 
I mean, they ostensibly ban the BNP members, but of course there's a, a lot of interaction on various levels, especially probably at the local level. Um, what is it? Do, do kind of like new organisations need to rise up to take on the baton? Or do, or do you think, is there an example of a like a, a party out there that has managed to recast itself as non-fascist? Well, just from the question at the end, I mean, that, that really was what I was trying to think about in terms of the MSI stroke AN. Because, you know, when I started writing about this stuff 20 years ago, actually, when we thought about fascism, almost everyone on the left thought it'd come through an electoral form of fascism, which would start off looking like a mainstream Conservative Party, because it had hardwired into its DNA the memory of being a fascist party, but then get into government and then radicalise in office. It's kind of idea of like crypto-fascist, I guess. Yeah, so it's like, you know, they'd get into power and they'd sort of whip off yeah. their jackets and, and there'd be, you know, these, these sort of not suits anymore beneath but on a bother boots or whatever. Um, now, what actually happened with the MSIAN is that having made a decision to, as it were, stand down their armies, they then genuinely de-radicalised and they actually became a um, right-wing party that was pretty well indistinguishable from any other Conservative party. Now, no one on the left in Britain or as far as I know internationally sort of turned back and said, oh, you know, does that mean that we need to think about our model that Eurofascism equals full-on Nazism just waiting to break out? We just said, oh, well, you know, that happened and we all moved on. But but to my mind, that's quite an important example because it's just exactly what you describe. It's an instance of um, a far-right party de-radicalising and, and I give sort of comparisons of that process happening on the left, you know, the history of the socialist parties 120 years ago being practically revolutionary organisations, or the communist parties in the 30s and the 70s. They too did that. You know, so it's actually quite common in politics um, for for forces to, to merge relatively at the extremes and to, to drift towards the margins. There's no reason at all why that can't happen to, to far-right parties. Um, again, it's really about... Um, what kind of project are they doing? Um, the more that it's solely an electoral project, the more they've given up on organising in the streets, um, then they're subject to the kind of things which we've all seen on the left, it's sort of people wanting to get into office and wanting to have a, a positive relationship with the state and existing ruling class and so on. That, that, that's a factor for them too. And of course, once you start like standing down your armies, as it were, and losing those kind of independent militias or street kind of politics, then... That's a certain set of like institutional skills and memories that will be lost, and I, I mean, I don't know how you would go about like regaining them. If you oh shit, we really need our militia back. How are we going to like train our forces and get good skills? And it's 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 very difficult to I guess retransition back into that more classical style of fascism. I, I think that's totally right. But but what I'm trying to argue in, in that book is I'm, tr I'm not just trying to look at those processes in isolation, but talk about what's the trend. Now, it seems to me, if you, if you talk about the post-45 period as totality, essentially, um, by about the 1960s, you were not going to have a viable um, far right in Europe or in the States unless they broke with their, their, their immediately copying style of fascism. So at that point, you just had to have a break. What's happened since couldn't have happened. That and why, why do you think that was? Was that because still because of the legacy of um, fascism defeat in the Second World War? Yeah. Or, yeah. 
yeah, there's just too many people alive who remembered fascism, who knew what it's about. I mean, I've, I've come here before and talked about a different book I wrote about the 1970s um, and Britain. And the way I always explain, like, why the National Front lost in Britain in the 70s is basically there were just so many people around who remembered fascism. You had to persuade them that the NF were fascists. Once you persuaded them they were fascists, then any anti-fascist strategy was allowed mm -hmm. right up to the point of beating up potential, I know even killing people would have been fine in the eyes of Joe Public because they were fascists. It was absolutely understood they were beyond the pale. Um, the moment people can start saying, we are plausibly not fascists, we're not subject to, that, to those rules, then they're back in the game. So what, what I argue in that chapter is essentially, firstly, there needs to be a process of break and rethinking. But then later on, actually, in the last 20 years post 9-11, it's not so much that, that people on the far right are emerging who are rejecting fascism. It's just not a priority for them. It's not in their mental universe. They're not drawing on it as their model, not, not even negatively. Um, for the very largest part, they're people who, who, who are drawing on things in the, in the present cultural context, and that sustains them. So, so at this point, they don't need to be, you know, I don't know, in the 70s and 80s, far-right parties to be viable needed to, to renounce their fascism. You know, something like um, Pim Fortuyn's say. Mm -hmm. No one thinks Pim Fortuyn's a fascist. Or, or maybe a better example might be uh, the League right now in Italy. No one thinks they're fascist. And because no one thinks they're fascist, they don't need to um, step away from it any anymore in the way that their predecessors of 20 or 30 years ago did need. You know, when uh, Le Pen Sr., uh, got onto the second round of French um, elections for the first time about 20 years ago. A million people go to the streets and protest and see this is an urgent threat to democracy. When Le Pen Jr. Um, does incredibly well in the French um, elections in 2017, yeah. the protests are a 20th of that size. So in terms of who thinks that she's a fascist, that's a much smaller proportion of French society. There's kind of two different questions. There's a question, is Le Pen actually a fascist? And there's the question of, do people think she's a fascist? And I think you've got to say that the large majority of French people do not believe she's a fascist. Now, whether she's actually a fascist, to my mind, that's quite a difficult question. Um, and it's really about the extent to which um, is she still trying to organise independently of the state? Um, I have to say my feeling is that she's best seen as part of these these. Um, generational politicians who as a whole generally aren't um but yeah you've given examples of the way in which 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 she is not the same as them you know um you know bits of the Le Pen family have really close a relationship with generation identity um you wouldn't look at say leading figures of the, of the brexit party and find that you just don't one thing I want to say earlier, but didn't is, you know, there is a there there are good reasons and bad reasons why everyone in the states think Trump's fascist. The good reason is because they don't like what's happening to people at the border. Yeah. The bad reason is because they live in a political culture where anything that's different from the Democrats is immediately presented as fascism. Well, how can you live like that then? You know, if like you know every single local election is either fascism or not even socialism, but you know something. You know, it's really draining on activists if that's in your head. We mentioned earlier about the left needed to present something more, like a different pole of attraction. Mm. Um, now, I mean, this could take many forms, and obviously there are many different people on the left who have many different ideas about where this would go, but for you, what kind of things do the left need to be offering um, offering to people um, that will that kind of present this like clear break and this clear kind of new kind of attraction 
in a similar way that the writers managed to do. Okay, some of this, I guess, is about what you offer and some is about how you organise the left. Okay. Um, the left needs to be so much better on economics and on class. And I mean, the whole way through the left, you know, there's so few people on the left who talk about things like the absolute tyranny that welfare benefits is doing to people, how it's destroying their lives, how it's been, you know... Um, I, I get up in court and I, in my day job, I'm a barrister and I represent a lot of people on benefits and their experience day after day is in order to keep going at the present time with all the benefits cuts we've got, they have to go without food. And that's just, that's my life. That's the people I meet day after day after day. And the left doesn't talk about their experiences. The left doesn't make that poverty and that class anger central right throughout the left, any bit of the left. Anarchism, Labour, absolutely everything in between has that problem. So, so some of this is about finding that anger and articulating it, so that, and doing that before the populists can. Um, well, so another way of looking at it may be about process and like how you have a viable left internationally. And one of the things I, I kind of try and suggest maybe at the end of the book is that we could take a leaf out of the internal way the rights rebuilt itself, which is essentially people who are relatively mainstream on the right have said... You know, we don't particularly have the answer to all these questions post-2008. So we're going to let the outliers make the running and we're going to allow ourselves to be pulled along behind them. And basically saying that some of the things should happen on, on, the, on the left. You know, that, um, you know, some of the campaigns I've done as, as a lawyer around things like blacklisting of construction workers, you know, it's a very healthy part of Corbynism. It's not the totality of Corbynism, but it's a very healthy dynamic on, within Corbynism that Corbyn says, all right, I don't know what to do about blacklisting, but you want a public inquiry, you want it, therefore it's our policy. And that's what the left needs to be doing all the way around, which is taking those demands that come from, from grassroots campaigns and making them the central demands and the promises of what, what the left will do um, in state power, but even, even the left will do once it reaches enough numbers so it can actually make things happen on the streets again. Um, so that's kind of what the book's arguing for in terms of left. There's um in the conclusion you say that the left needs to expose its enemies as racists. Mm. Do you think that racism is going to function now in the same way that the accusation of fascism functioned against the National Front, or is there something different going on here? No, I, I I think unfortunately it isn't. I mean, how we got to the point where. Um, say in 1975 say there were hundreds of millions of people around the world who just understood and got that fascism was their mortal enemy well we got there by 50 million people dying i mean let's be honest that's how that's what it took to get to that point i don't think um that that say just calling someone a racist in that function can 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 replace that i um, mean i think i was listening to one of these podcasts a few episodes ago and i think one of you was saying that you know um, it's been a tremendously valuable weapon for the left that we've been able to call our enemy fascists. It's the most effective slur. And when I listened to that, I said, yeah, that's right. That was me. Yeah, that was you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't just replace that. You know, if yeah. you say, look, we've got our front group and it used to be called Unite Against Fascism, now it's called Stand Up to Racism, and then we've gone from fascism to racism, that would do the business. It's a little part of it. It's not. It's not the thing. Uh, yeah, also because, like, most people who are racist don't think they're racist and think it's like a kind of natural, they just think they're right. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe this is a, um, a kind of morbid question, but all the yeah, way along you've been kind of intimating that there could be something worse than fascism mm. and that it's a mistake to assume naively that fascism was kind of the worst thing that could possibly happen. Um, 
do you want to give us kind of like a slightly more sketched in oh vision of like what that could be, what could be I'm, in that I'm, kind of I'm position? Not, I'm not entirely sure like dystopian like world building is particularly. I don't think I'm not entirely sure it's a particularly useful exercise to engage in beyond acknowledging the potentialities of the present situation. So, for example, you can look at as we have done in previous episodes, um, the climate crisis, and kind of extrapolate where that kind of great, like, you know, fundamental changes to the planet will go and how that will affect our politics and how we should respond. But I'm not entirely, you know, the year is 2050 and yeah, Johnson's I, I, head in a jar has now been yeah, the no, rule no, of I mean, the but look, it, it would, In a sense, it wouldn't take that much to be worse than fascism, I mean, to be worse than historical fascism. There were um, only two states in the world which were... Um, governed by absolutely um, committed, sincere, thoroughgoing people who understood what fascism was about, and that's Italy and Germany. One of them was actually more thoroughgoing than the other. Uh, then there were imitators. Spain, um, after Franco came to power, um, for, for a relatively short period of time, there was an incredible level of brutality, the killing of tens or hundreds of thousands of people because of the political positions they'd taken. But again, you start getting two, three, four states... Well, if you want something that's worse than fascism, yeah, fascism plus it. ecocide, fascism in more places, you know. But it's not a particular, a different political form that you're thinking of. I mean, or, like, or it's like a wide, more widespread version of the same thing, plus some extra, like dynamics of like climate change breakdown or something. Yeah, or, or also another way of thinking about it. I mean, let's just say that Trump was in power for ten years. Not 10 years, 8 years. Let's say Trump's in power for If he's in power for 10 years, then, then, <laughs> yeah, then you've yeah, got okay. a fascist. Trump's in power for 8 years. But, but you know, and the number of killings, think about the rate they've already been killing, increasing over the three to four years he's been in power. Think about they continue year on year at the same rates. Think what it's going to be like at the end. What that would mean would be that in 10 years' time, people would be saying, for God's sake, we can't have another Trump, rather than for God's sake, we can't have another fascist. They wouldn't be saying that because Trump would be more murderous and more brutal, but, but it'd be because he's more recent. You know, that I'm just saying that the world, you know, the future is well stocked with possible barbarities. <laughs> and trying to work out exactly, I totally agree with, with people saying, look, let's not work out exactly which is going to be which. I, I, I mean, the, the thing that I think worries me most is that the, the, there was, fa when fascism originally arose and, and kind of got itself into power, it, it happened over an incredibly short period of time. You know, relatively speaking to how much, you know, how successful it was. You know, these parties started from very small numbers and grew into, you know, into and took over the state. Um, my, I mean, my worry is that people will not, kind of, things will happen so slowly and, and gradually that eventually people will like, it, people won't know, there won't be this huge break or there won't be this like big thing to struggle against. It's just our daily, daily lives will get worse and worse and worse and there'll be more, I don't know, surveillance checks and passport controls and in whatever. And then, you know, it doesn't, it, I don't feel, I don't feel it has to be in this, in this, like, I don't, I don't feel like fascism can, does it has to have this like huge surge of energy and then, you know, come into power, it can just, I feel that's where the danger lies, is, is that it just kind of happens very gradually yeah, and slowly. Yeah, look, look, try and give a really practical example, which I talk about in my book. You know, in the 1970s, deportations happened in Britain at the rate of about getting on for 200 a year. And this was disgusting, and this was outrageous, and this was offensive, and so many people organised campaigns against detentions. And actually, we know quite a lot of the names of the families, we know the names of the activists who stood behind it, because this is part of the history of the left that when the deportations were happening at the rate of 200 a year, lots and lots of people stood up to be counted against it. Well, now deportations are happening at the rate of tens of thousands a year. 
and and the the left alternative that we have that's the viable form of government has this you know their proposal is maybe let's reduce it down a little bit we'll definitely close Yarlswood but then you know we'll have a fair reasonable process for deportations and and then that'll that's that's enough as a policy yeah I mean, but but I'm, I'm not particularly criticizing actually to say the institutions of left I'm actually just talking about um I'm talking about it just the people on the left that it's weird, it's become much more pervasive, but the number of people talking about it is probably more or less exactly the same. Um, that our collective capacity hasn't grown with the scale of the problem we're, we're facing. The collective capacity to resist is more or less where it was 40 years ago. I have a question about anti the anti-fascist movement and anti-fascism. Mm. And another part of the the, the um, conclusion of the book is to say that fascism is now a minor- minority position in the far right, which I do agree with, and and that immediately raises the question of priorities. Like anti-fascism is an incredibly you know time and kind of energy intensive activity that causes people a lot of you know trauma and stress, um, and I wondered um, whether our priorities are best served elsewhere or how 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 should they. Maybe it's a question for the like the whole left, or how should mm. the whole left engage with anti-fascism and then this this new kind of amalgam of conservatism and far right and this new kind of convergences? Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, I find it I find it a quite a difficult question, a very difficult question to answer, and I I don't think really anyone. I mean, go on, yeah, maybe you do have the well, perfect answer. Well, I don't have the perfect answer, but but maybe a, a, a way of thinking about it might be like this. Um, one of the points of the book is to encourage people to see the non-fascist far-right as an enemy, just as much as the fascist far-right as an enemy, and to call, as it were, for an anti-fascism or an anti-something, to call for a movement that, that sees that as, as the thing we have to resist. Because, you know, what, what does the victory mean if we could close down, I don't know, um, national action here, but Farage can get all those percent of the vote? I mean, really, what, what, are, what are we doing? Why are we directing our energy there? It's not the obvious place. Farage creates a lot of people further to his right. <laughs> Those neo-Nazi groups create relatively few people closer to the centre than that. So, so an argument in my book might be that, that, that we need to reorient. Now, I could hear, I hope you don't mind, I could hear when you were asking the question, the thought like, Jesus, you know, we've got to reorient and there's not that many of us. <laughs> so suddenly we've got to take some of our people and get them to do something else. And we'll have even fewer people to do what we're doing already. What I'm really trying to say, I guess, is that if we could find the way of being exciting, effective, creative, compelling in the way that we were resisting the ordinary far right, there are actually a whole lot of a whole bunch of other people out there who, who want to be part of that, who are actually are willing to be part of that, who aren't necessarily involved in anti fascism at the moment. You know, I mean when I do my talks, half the time I'm talking to anarchist audiences and I love that. But actually half the time I'm talking to quite mainstream Labour Party audiences and even, you know, bits of the Labour Party which are to the right, say, of Jeremy Corbyn, um, they too get, they too have a survival at stake in in politics not becoming a, in future, I don't know, Boris Johnson versus Nigel Farage contest. So there are people there who, you know, may not particularly like the bits of the left which I'm most comfortable with, but actually willing to work with us, um, get it, and they're willing to be allies. So it's, it can be a way of, of bringing people in. If, and I want to put to put that really concretely, you know, 
Um, the most effective piece of anti-fascist propaganda I've seen in Britain in the last year was when Tommy Robinson, November, December last year, was going to have some event and Navarra Media decided that they were going to go for him and they were going to really attack him online. And Ash Sarkar put out a film called... Um, and it started off by saying Tommy Robinson knew toe fungus or something. And like 300,000 people shared that. That's amazing. Um, those people are not the people who are going along to organise anti-fascism at the moment, but they get that Robinson, Farage, the whole of the far right is their enemy. So if we could find a way of making space for some more of those people, we'd have a larger anti-fascist movement. I, I mean, I completely agree. And there was that kind of, you were right to pick up on the note of impression. I, I do feel like this kind of, the confrontation of this like new far right is responsibility of every, everybody who kind of identifies on the left or puts themselves on the left in their politics. Um, I feel... Um, maybe maybe UKIP is a perfect example of this, is that UKIP ultimately, leave aside the Brexit stuff, um, or the Brexit party, leave aside the Brexit and the Brexit party, what are their other, what are their other policies? It's, it's you know, massive tax cuts on corporations, um, slashing of the welfare state so that people are even more can't eat food, you know, regulations on the environment. This is all tied up in Brexit as well. Um, and so these are like kind of very antithetical to like um, the less project of building well. I, well, I think the less project is building working class power and mm. and building working class autonomy as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's not it's not it isn't just for anti-fascism and and it, I feel like it is for the like, a, a responsibility of the wider left to to take up this kind of fight, which I think is also leads on to a kind of defence of anti-fascist organisations as existing as quite like a specific function. So the the ways in which one would encounter, say, national action, I think is probably the most extreme example you could give. But like the ways in which you would encounter some groups of people are actually quite like distinct from the way you would encounter encounter Farage. Of course, like mm. I disagree with you about the which the most effective piece of propaganda. I think the most effective piece of propaganda is actually milkshaking. Mm. Um, and what was good was, it, was that it equated Tony Robertson who got milkshaked, Nigel Farage who got milkshaked. Everyone who got milkshaked was tarred with the same milkshake. And like, and this, I mean, not that they say they're all fascists, but they were um, kind of equated in this way and they were yeah. drawn together as like a singular kind of form. Of yeah, no, I agree. Energy. I think that's how milkshaking work. And I think it's a great approach. I'm, 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 it's, you know, there are lots of things which are good about milkshaking. One of the things that's really good about milkshaking was it just made these people look ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You know, often... Often on, on, on the left, we think the most effective tactic towards people on the far right is, is physically confront them. And I love that. I'll do that. I'll support the people who, who do that. But, you know, sometimes making them look really ridiculous is really great. And I also agree with you that um, that it's the joining up of different bits of the right was part of its success. You know, th at the end of my book, I talk about the bits of anti-fascism, which I like, and they're all things that had that in common. You know, it's punching uh, Richard Spencer on the day of Trump's inauguration. Part of the reason why that Trump goes, why that punch goes around the world, is because it's that relationship between the conventional electoral right and the far right, and people see that. That's why they respond to that because they don't want the far right having influence over government. Think about Charlottesville. Why? Why was that such a such an enormous event? Part of it was because of the way which Trump tried to defend them. You know, ordinary Republican voters, this is not to idealise Republican voters, <laughs> but ordinary Republican voters suddenly started getting a bit alarmed when people were questioning what the effect was of their votes. So so a, a way of, of doing anti-fascism that kind of reverses this convergence, that exposes 
the alliances between different parts of far right. Yeah, that's exactly what, what my book's all about. Definitely a great place to leave. Been a Everyone should go buy this book. It's called The New Authoritarians, The Convergence on the Right. Um, even if you kind of listened to David and disagreed with things that he said or what we said, I feel like it's a really, a really worthwhile contribution to the current thinking on the far right. And people need to be considering this in their kind of thinking and politics. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Thank you very much for having me. So if you want to support the show, um, as I say every week, you can donate to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash 12 rules for what? Um, uh, please give as much as you can. We really need all the money you can give us. <laughs> um, and if you just want to listen to the show, we can find us on SoundCloud and any other podcast platform. And we also... Um, Really appreciate if you can, you know, recommend us to your friends or if you've got someone who's like interested in anti-fascism or interested in the far right, not like interested, interested, but like just intellectually interested. Give them the podcast. Critically interested. Critically interested. <laughs> uh, give them the podcast and tell them to listen to it because we really need those numbers. You know, we're all about those numbers. It has been building really well since uh, it began, actually. Every single month has been significantly larger than the previous month in a really quite like amazing way. So thank you for all the support so far. 12 rules. Yeah, it's nice.